The last page has been turned on my most recent read. I'm enjoying a nice cup of tea and boy. As I say that, I realise how British it sounds. The weather has been incredibly unusual. We've had no rain, but you can tell autumn and pumpkin spice season. Though, here's a tidbit, I have never actually had one, is on its way and I am ready to tell you all about the book I've just finished. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion filled and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. How long am I going to be saying that for? Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. I decided against releasing an episode last week for a multitude of reasons. One being the Queen's funeral that opened up a lot of memories for me and another being something that has been plaguing me for a few months and I will get to that later. This week I'm taking you to the incredibly competitive world of science with a book that is marketed using the term wild commercial appeal. After I reviewed The Spanish Love Deception, I swore, and you all heard me say it, that I wasn't going to pick up another book that was declared TikTok recommended. This one even has a printed sticker on the cover. So join me as I review The STEM Romance, The Love Hypothesis by Ali Hazelwood. Light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot, I've got a steaming cup of tea beside me, or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, and your preference of course, and let's get started. As a third year PhD candidate, Olive Smith doesn't believe in lasting romantic relationships, but her best friend does, and that's what's got her into this situation. Convincing Anne that Olive is dating and well on her way to a happily ever after was always going to take more than hand-wavy Jedi mind tricks. Scientists require proof. So like any self-respecting biologist, Olive panics and kisses the first man she sees. That man is none other than Adam Carlson, a young hotshot professor and well-known ass. Which is why Olive is positively flawed when Stanford's reigning lab tyrant agrees to keep her charade a secret and be her fake boyfriend. But when a big science conference goes haywire, putting Olive's career on the Bunsen burner, Adam surprises her yet again with his unyielding support and even more unyielding six-pack abs. Suddenly, their little experiment feels dangerously close to combustion, and Olive discovers that the only thing more complicated than a hypothesis on love is putting her own heart under the microscope. Believe it or not, back in the mid-1990s, I was actually a STEM student in the T branch, tech, as I studied computer sciences. Yeah, I'm being completely honest, I studied computer sciences at university. I was one of those people complete with the glasses, the hair in the mess, and being completely floundered with everything that has to do with social networking. There were probably three girls on my course out of 75 students, 
But that was what I expected at the time. Girls weren't looking to get into science in the early 90s. And if they were, it was likely the true science branch. Anyway, I digress. Oliver is in the third year of her PhD at Stanford. And the first time she meets Adam Carlson is in his lab bathroom. But it's somewhat forgettable, at least as far as Adam is concerned. Two years and a chapter later literally a chapter, Olive is kissing Adam passionately, despite the fact if her inner monologue is anything to go by, she is not his biggest fan. This kiss has a reason, that being the fact that she has relatively recently split up with her boyfriend Jeremy, and he is showing interest in Anne, her best friend. Unfortunately, or unfortunately in this instance, Anne has declared loyalty to her friend and... Even though she has feelings for Jeremy, she will not date him unless Olive is showing interest elsewhere. Forced by circumstance to show Anne that she has moved on, Olive essentially accosts the unsuspecting Adam and snogs him witless, thus proving that she no longer has any feelings for Jeremy and Anne can feel free to accept the poor boy's offer of a date and pursue a relationship with him. Did I mention that some of this is somewhat convoluted? Oh, I, I forgot. I'm I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, sort of. Sorry. Anyway, Adam is not so happy about the whole situation. And until Olive explains why she kissed him, he's actually ready to file a case of sexual harassment against her. And let's be fair here, if this were a thriller, (laughs) which it's not, this is where the need for vengeance would begin. It would kind of make the story a bit more interesting in my opinion. But anyway, luckily though, after Olive explains everything, because we the readers do sort of need to know what's changed in a single chapter, Adam is placated and even agrees to go along with her insane plan. And being honest, it is an insane plan. I mean, oh, my ex-boyfriend is interested in my best friend, so I kissed you because I saw my best friend and I want to prove to her that I'm actually seeing somebody. Seriously, in what real-life situation are you going to come across this? So in one moment, we initiate two massive contemporary romance tropes and make a lot of people happy in the process. Enemies to lovers is a go. But then so is fake dating. While all of this is going on, Olive is also trying to get the attention of Harvard lecturer and star researcher Tom Benton. She has an idea for the perfect study project, but Stanford has run out of funding to help her start it. So she's now looking to the next best place. She has been exchanging emails with Tom, incredibly neutral and focused on her study a pancreatic cancer screening project for which there is a reason connected to her own family losses. It turns out that Tom Benton is headed to Stanford to collaborate with an old friend and ex-colleague who, of course, if you look at this as a contemporary romance, has to be Adam. In fact, read this as a rom-com. That's how you need to read it because the rest of the story wouldn't work without him. While communicating with Tom, Olive's relationship with Adam continues to build, though they are still playing it fake. That would be quite a good title for a novel unless it already is. Playing it fake. 
purely to ensure that Anne and Jeremy's relationship keeps on growing and developing into something more serious because every friend in real life is that scarily obsessed with their best friend's romantic endeavours to the point that they will fake date someone they previously claimed to hate. Things take a bit of a turn when Tom Benton shows up, though not necessarily in a bad way. Tom and Adam are indeed friends, but he is not oblivious to Tom's faults. It reaches the point at this conference where Olive realises Tom is not a nice person. He's a liar, a schemer, a thief, and just all round an ass. It appears that the way he treats Olive is not special, and to be honest, I can see that particular aspect of the story coming from a mile away. It has to, otherwise the plot wouldn't progress. There are a few revelations through the book that were a little bit predictable, but they allowed the story to move, including momentary anger at Jeremy, who it appears was aware from the very beginning that Adam was not the jerk he initially appeared to be, and also had something of a romantic interest in Olive. Now, as I have said multiple times, I don't do spoilers, and I won't be looking at the twist in the tale, nor will I be revealing the ending. Though, if you are a regular reader of contemporary romances, that shouldn't actually be necessary, and to be fair, it should be quite easy to guess. What I am doing is looking at the story as a whole, the characters, the plot development, and the originality of the story. Before I get into what I actually thought of this book, you know that I love to make sure that my review is balanced. So I did look at what other reviewers think. And believe me when I say there are thousands, literally thousands of them to choose from. In fact, there are over 90,000 reviews and nearly 710,000 ratings on Goodreads. That's it. 710,000 people posted that they had read this book and gave it a star rating. Yes, this is a popular book with a score of 4.29 out of 5 overall. 4.29, that's pretty good given the ratings, the number of ratings there are. Mia gave the book just one star. And when I tell you that the lower rating reviews were in the minority, I'm being completely honest. I ended up having to sort by rating to find one. Agony is over. So I gave this a chance but from the beginning, this was bad, in my opinion. Adam is a well-known ass, is repeated ten times just in the first four chapters. Show, not tell people. Seriously. Also, he wasn't an ass, actually. Quite the opposite. So what was the point? This isn't grumpy times sunshine. Stop spreading misinformation. Rather, this is boring and annoying. They were, in that regard, just right for each other. The romance is so bland, I thought I was going into a coma. The book is also way too long. For what, I ask? To say a million times how tall and handsome Adam is. The only thing I found funny, cringe, was smut. Here are just a couple of sentences. He could fit her entire breast into his mouth, all of it. He had big fingers. That must be why they didn't fit. Her insides opened to him without warning. 
they welcomed and pulled at him. So in between constant boredom and cringe, I definitely say this is one of the worst books I have ever read. I have to say that it was actually interesting to look at the stats offered about this book on Goodreads for multiple reasons. According to the reviews, 96% of those who offered a review or rating gave it a positive reception. So that was the exception. Yun gave the book five stars and I think she probably would have liked to give it more. Ah, scientists in love, be still my heart. Olive is a third-year PhD candidate, filling her pipettes and titrating like a boss. When she somehow manages to land herself in a fake relationship with the ever-glowering Dr. Adam Carlson, she really can't believe her luck. Unfortunately, she has spun her lies, so she has no choice but to see them through. But the more time they spend together, the more Olive starts to realise he might just be the one she's been looking for all along. This was just a hoot and a half. A lot of rom-coms manage to get the romantic part exactly right, but the love hypothesis hits the comedy bit out of the park too. Olive's dialogues are witty and snarky, and she pretty much cracked me up from the beginning to end. I couldn't stop giggling and snorting, even while reading in public, which definitely got me some weird looks from strangers. I absolutely loved that Ali Hazelwood chose a woman in STEM as her main character and highlighted the difficulties they encounter as part of this story. As a woman in STEM myself, it warms my heart to see someone like me take centre stage in a romance. A lot of what Olive went through, including how intimidating it is to be in a field surrounded by men and how unsure she is of her worth and her ability, I understand intimately. The romance between Olive and Adam developed slowly, with plenty of tension and sizzle. The premise to set up the trope of fake dating was a little silly, but once you get past that, the rest is nothing short of sweet and satisfying. Adam is reticent in the beginning, but he soon thaws and warms up to Olive's relentless cheer and good-natured teasing. His support of her in their shared field is particularly touching, and it made me root even harder for this couple. With romances, there's always the question of whether it contains explicit, open-door scenes, and whichever way the book chooses to go, it inevitably alienates half of the readership who want it the other way. That's why I was particularly fond of the way it was handled in this book. All of those scenes are in one contiguous chunk spread across two chapters, so it's easy to skip if that's not your thing, and you can still enjoy the rest of the story without having to worry about missing anything crucial. This story totally checks all the boxes for me. It's sweet, smart, and uproariously funny, and it touched my heart and my mind. No doubt about it, anything Ali Hazelwood writes from now on will be devoured by me post-haste. So here's where I get to the nitty-gritty, or my opinion. Did I like the love hypothesis? I would be the first to admit that contemporary romance novels are something that I enjoy. In fact, I will post a photo on my Instagram of some of my bookshelves so you can see for yourself how much I love to read them. They are the perfect foil to a bad day. A few tears, a little laughing, a few kisses, a gentle touch, not me and someone else, I will stress, and they are my happy place. However, I'm not sure I am a huge fan of this new version of contemporary romance. 
For me, there is something that is missing and I'm not sure I can quite put my finger on what it is. Is it the lack of emotion, despite some of these novels being so much longer than those written by my established favourite authors? Is it the fact that the characters in those other books are ones I've grown up with? Older, a little more mature and experiencing traumatic life events that make me cry? Being completely honest here, I just don't know. Anyway, I picked up this book for one reason. It was being heartily recommended by so many people across multiple platforms. And I'm going to say here, I don't have TikTok, so I haven't seen all those recommendations. And I'm one of those people who will not criticise anything until I've read it. Come on, I've even read E.L. James purely so I can say whether I like it or not. I want to give authors a chance. They spend time reading it, so writing it, so why shouldn't I give them the benefit of the doubt? If you hadn't heard of the love hypothesis before I started to talk about it, then perhaps I should explain a few things that many readers are already already aware of. The most important being that there is a reason that Adam Carlson looks and behaves the way he does. He's modelled on Adam Driver's interpretation of Kylo Ren. Yes, the character from the more recent Star Wars films. Now, I can't actually comment on how accurate this interpretation of his character really is because I haven't seen a Star Wars film since 1983. That means the last film I saw was Return of the Jedi in the cinema and we got kicked out halfway through because my sister started screaming, they're killing the daddy bears and we got asked to leave. But from what I have heard from fans, Ali Hazelwood didn't go far wrong. Of course, where goes Kylo Ren, so goes Ray, with no surname. Not me, Ray, another Ray. And Ray is apparently the character on whom Olive was based. Yes, in some strange way, this is an alternative universe, Kylo Ren and Ray from Star Wars. And apparently it was completely intentional. But please don't let that influence you either way when it comes to reading this book. It's not going to make a difference. Ultimately, for me at least, the book was a little bit too long, a little bit too predictable. And though I know that they have a solid foundation, the characters lacked something in their development. Though I would be the first to say I love tropes, this one perhaps overused both of the ones it contained, that of enemies to lovers, despite the fact that exactly as with the Spanish love deception, that enemies aspect was completely one-sided, and of course, fake dating. I do have to say that despite the fact I wasn't completely drawn into the story to the point that I gave any thought to the characters, the book was well edited, well written and well planned. It just didn't get me where I need a contemporary romance to, in my heart. Yes, that was intended to be corny. I'm not going to apologise for it. Will I read more by Ali Hazelwood? Since releasing this in September 2021, there have been four cleverly titled Steminist novels and another full-length book. This one based around a project in the space program at NASA. I have admittedly read every single one of them, and though they aren't for me, I went through a stage of, I need easy reads, so I picked them up. If I'm being honest, if you love the love hypothesis, you will enjoy them, 
especially the full-length novel Love on the Brain, because they are pretty much the same novel with different character names, a lot of hate turns to love and the usual misunderstandings. As a bonus, they were incredibly quick and easy reads, so if you just want something to read that won't make you think too much after a long week, then I would point you in the direction of these books. And I'm not meaning to sound disparaging, it's just my opinion on them. I am going to stress, though I shouldn't have to, this is my opinion and everyone is entitled to be different. So what I found merely okay, you may love. And that's great because I just want people to read. Doesn't matter what you read. I honestly couldn't care. Just read something. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then these are some of the books I recommend you look at. There are so many new contemporary romance authors out there, but it depends completely on what you're looking for. My personal favourites tend to write a very different type of romance to the ones that are written by Ali Hazelwood, so I'm not even going to look at those if you're looking for something like this. The Spanish Love Deception by Eleanor Armas wasn't my thing, but it has been re-edited and released by a major publishing house recently, and everything about it screams enemies to lovers and fake dating. It Happened One Summer by Tessa Bailey is not exactly enemies to lovers, but it has the kind of start to that, plus there are misunderstandings. For me, this was the superior novel in the Bellinger Sisters duology by Bailey, with strong character development and a rather sweet and steamy love story. The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang came out in 2018, so before the TikTok recommendations trend took off. It is STEM-based, focusing a little bit on statistics and finding your perfect match. It's actually on my TBR right now. Last week we welcomed the start of autumn and this weekend October begins so we're officially in jumper season. I only have a few so I really need to build up my collection. I have to admit I am not the biggest fan of this time of year. I like sunshine and blue skies though my skin doesn't but I know many people will be relishing the leaves turning from green to shades of gold and the wind picking up and all the rain and the more I talk about it the more I want summer. But anyway, autumn is officially here and so begins the time of year when it's perfectly acceptable to sit on your sofa with a hot cup of cocoa and a pile of books so high you can't see around it. That's my time of year. Or rather, that's my ideal vision of this time of year, not having to go anywhere. I have been incredibly disciplined with books over the last few weeks as my spare funds have been spent on getting my flat ready for winter new curtains, a stock of cocoa powder and new paint samples so I can get my study decorated, ready to work there and not stare at a cream wall all day. I've also been contemplating where I'm going to be taking being bookish in the new year and that's actually quite exciting if I'm honest. Though I haven't purchased any books at all in the last two weeks, I am not without a large TBR but I am not going to let that stop me from looking for new books. So if there is a fiction novel you think I would love, I am not going to say no. So recommend away. Send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram 
and I will be sure to take a look. Though I will stress I have a very long TBR, so it might be a while before I get to it. There's quite a lot going on this week when it comes to book releases, so <laughs> it's not really that different to the rest of September, if I'm being honest. Let's take a look at what's on the schedule for the week beginning the 25th of September. I stuttered over that and I think it's because I can't believe we're already that close to October. A young assassin in 1930s Shanghai struggles to survive in the latest from author Chloe Gong, Foul Lady Fortune. In the latest novel from Kate Atkinson, we visit London in 1926, the height of the jazz age when London is still recovering from the Great War, for the story of Nellie Croker, Shrines of Gaiety. Though Geoffrey Archer isn't an author I would automatically purchase, I, ha I don't think I've read anything of his since Cain and Abel. Many do like him, and this week, the final instalment, the fifth book in his William Warwick series, Next in Line, is released. Magic folklore, a young girl returning to face her past. You get all of that and more in the latest novel from bestseller Adrienne Young, Spells for Forgetting. You can tell that we're in the final throes of September when looking at the list of releases still to come. It may quiet a little, but as we head for Christmas, the number of new books to buy will continue to grow, mostly cookbooks and biographies if previous years are anything to go by. There is so much to choose from and if you want to find out more about the books coming in the next few months, make sure to sign up for my newsletter by clicking the button on my website or heading for my Twitter page. This is Ray while she's editing this part of the episode gets a bit dark. There is talk of suicide. So if you are triggered by any of this, please stop listening at this point. So how are things in the bookish household this week? At the beginning of the episode, I promised that I would say, tell you something about A, the reason I didn't release an episode last week and B, why things have been a bit different for me in the last couple of months. Now, as I have, I'm, I'm very honest about my mental health issues and the fact that I have had them for a very long time. And the last couple of months, I have noticed, though not straight away, the fact that my behavior has been different, my mood has been different, I have been struggling to get out of bed in the mornings. Yeah, this is going to sound like, oh, that's me. I'm always struggling to get out of bed. And it's true. I know that most people don't like facing, especially Monday mornings. But it's been more the fact that I have struggled to stay focused. I hate using mental health as an excuse. And I hate it when people use mental health as an excuse for poor behavior, treating people badly, or just generally, oh, no, my mental health's really bad today. I think that it's a very poor excuse for things. So I'm not going to ever say I've been performing badly at work because my mental health is bad, or I've been acting differently because my mental health is bad. I have just noticed that my mood has dropped a lot. I Sometimes I would say that it's because we're heading into winter, 
but we've only just started that dip towards the colder months and my mood swings have been far more obvious to me since probably around June and June or July when summer was at its peak it was we had beautiful weather and the sun was shining almost every single day we had an amazing summer if I'm being honest but my mood has been really low I have felt that I struggled with motivation whether even when it's doing things I want to do Last week, we had an extra day off work because we had the Monday off. And instead of reading a book or focusing on something exciting, I sat down and I watched a funeral despite knowing that it would send me into the pits of depression, even if that only lasted the day. I've been doing things that I know aren't good for my mood, aren't good for my mental health, aren't good for the... For, the, for my general well-being and I honestly wish I understood more about why that is. I think that we are, I would be the first to admit, we can be our own worst enemies and I know that I'm one of mine. I will purposely do things, well actually that sounds really bad, I don't purposely do them, it's almost unintentional, I will do things that I that harm me and afterwards, I look back and I say to myself, why did I do that when I knew it was going to make me upset? Or I knew that it was going to stress me out to the point where tomorrow or the next day was going to be even harder than it needed to be. For the last couple of months, I have been not putting, not pressing the snooze button because I don't have one, but... I have been having to force myself to face the day. And all that goes through my head when I wake up is another one. Really, I don't want it. And it's not, oh, I've, I've got to go to work. and uh, It is more, I cannot face another day. I don't want to. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to see people. I don't want to speak to people. And that sounds really awful because I've got some very understanding friends. It's more that I don't want to bring them down because I know that I'm not quite right. I know that our bodies, as a rule, tend to go through a seven-year refresh. And this year, it is seven years since I had my last serious Actually, next year is seven years since I had my last serious mental break. And by that, I mean couldn't get out of bed. Not, I don't want to get out of bed, I'm really tired, but I cannot get out of bed. I just bury my head under the covers and I stay there. And the first time this happened, I was 31. I think I was 31. And I could not face, actually, no, I wasn't. Oh, gosh. I was, it was 2000. And I could not face anything. 
I had stockpiled medication. And this is something I don't talk about very often. But I had reached the point where I didn't want to be alive anymore. I had stockpiled serious medication. We're talking morphine and codeine because I'd ruptured a thigh muscle and I couldn't walk properly. I couldn't face getting up. I couldn't face seeing people. I stayed in my room all the time. And I was living with my grandparents at the time. I stayed in my room all day, didn't see anybody, didn't go out. I just, one morning I woke up, I phoned my work and I told them I had a stomach ache and I didn't go back for 10 months. I went to the doctor who referred me to a psychiatrist and though getting referrals was easy, seeing somebody was hard, luckily I had private health care and I saw a psychiatrist that week. If I were um, going via the NHS, I'd have been waiting for six months and would have just been fobbed off with sick notes and Prozac. It was a really tough period of time, but I survived more through luck than anything else. I had countless sessions of therapy. I had weekly and often twice weekly appointments with a psychiatrist at a private hospital. And I slowly realized that I could cope. And it was a very slow process. I mean, when I say 10 months before I went back to work, I mean legitimately 10 months before I went back to work. I couldn't see people. I didn't want to see people. I was a wreck. My breath smelt because the pills, one of the pills that the doctor gave me to make me sleep made your breath smell. One of the pills that the doctor gave me in order to keep me awake during the day made me feel very sluggish and less than human. I went through a multitude of medications and I came out the other side of it having with a better understanding of why I had always felt relatively low and why I'd spent six months of my life prior to phoning up one day and saying I'm not coming I've got a stomach bug sitting in the disabled toilets in my office contemplating how I could break a mirror so I could slit my wrists and I am going to put a begin a warning at the beginning of this because that isn't something that everybody should hear. But it was a difficult time and since that moment I have had that ex- I've that experience has recurred twice further though I wasn't off for 10 months with either of those. I was off for 3 months the second time and 2 months the third. I am just hoping that whatever is wrong with me at this moment in time is going to go away. I am already on a waiting list to see somebody, which has which sort of started last year and we're now in September. So my guess is as good as yours as to when I will get seen. I guess what I need to say here is that if there is any difference and you notice any difference don't be afraid to say something. If you notice somebody you care about is acting differently, don't be afraid to say, I'm here to listen to you. 
because sometimes they just need a friendly voice. They need somebody to say, hey, you can talk to me. Sometimes they won't want to. Sometimes they won't be able to voice their feelings. And it isn't always easy to say, I need help or I don't know what's wrong with me because I'm being honest here. The first time this happened to me, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just thought it was malaise or ennui, as the French say, or as they used to say in the Victorian era. I thought it was ennui. I thought I was just, it was going to be something I got over. And it didn't help that my grandmother, who had herself suffered from what we now know to be postnatal depression, just said to me, oh, put a smile on your face. It'll go away. You're fine. It, it's not that easy. But sometimes we just need to know that people are there. And when we are ready to talk, we will. This is, <laughs> this has been my TED talk. <laughs> oh, it isn't easy. And I, at least I know now why I occasionally feel this way. There are a lot of other things going on in my life at this moment in time that I'm not going to go into because though they do affect my mental health and my stability, they aren't anything that anyone else can do anything about. So I'm not going to share them and thinking about them just makes me worry. Wow. I am so sorry. <laughs> this has been a very um, low talk on top of a bright book. So I will put a timestamp in there so you know where you can stop if you don't want to listen to the bad stuff. But just know that it is there is a light at the end of the tunnel if you are going through this speak to your GP. I know that it'll be a long waiting list unless you've got private healthcare in the UK, but do speak to your GP and speak to someone that you know you can talk to, whether that's your friend, your sister, your mum, your, your nan, your brother, your cousin, your aunt, whoever it is, speak to somebody. Let them know that you need the support that you aren't getting from elsewhere. Well, that's it for this week on that very um, depressed note I'm afraid thank you for listening if you like what you hear why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on good pods spotify Podchaser, or apple podcasts wow that list is growing you can follow me on twitter at being underscore bookish where I am definitely far less depressive and on Instagram, where I just post mostly pictures of books at beingbookishpod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week, and a new book is calling me. In fact, two of them are. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.